Welcome to Upwelling, where we bring the richness of local literature to the airwaves. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Today I'm pleased to interview Norma Watkins about her new novel, In Common, and Mendocino County Youth Laureate, Sydney Regelbruggie. Norma Watkins is a well-known figure in Mendocino County. She taught creative writing at the community college in Fort Bragg for 10 years. Norma served on the Mendocino Writers Conference Board for over 22 years and is an active participant in Writers of the Mendocino Coast. Norma completed her Master's of Fine Arts in 2008 at Florida International University. She has a doctorate in philosophy and a master's degree from the University of Miami and a bachelor's from Millsaps College in Mississippi. That's a lot of letters. Norma is also the author of three books that illuminate the twisted thinking of Southern elites. Her most recent novel, In Common, takes us to pre-war Jackson, Mississippi. We meet the privileged white class head-on and experience the racist, misogynist society of the place and the period. If you read her two previous memoirs, The Last Resort and That Woman from Mississippi, you'll know that Norma understands this world as only an insider who grew up in it can. In Common details the lives of three women and how their existence is dependent on both the man in their lives and their ability to hide from the truths that stare them in the face. Norma is with us today to talk about her latest book, and she will be reading a few selections from the novel. Thank you, Norma. Tell us about your first selection and and go ahead and start reading. I will read you the opening scene of the novel, uh, which is in the voice of Velma, who's a young girl at this time living on a small farm outside the town of Picayune in South Mississippi. Before dawn, on a March morning, In 1933, Velma Vernon, nine years old and already tall for her age, set onions behind Uncle Drew's tractor. South Mississippi stirred from winter. A mist hung over the low end of the field, and the plow cut loamy furrows into the cold soil. Uncle Drew sang, Life is just a bowl of cherries, his voice loud over the engine's growl. Velma sang along, straddling the row, stooping every six inches to place a baby onion, standing to pull another from her sack. The singing stopped. Trying to turn at the bottom of the field, Uncle Drew had backed the tractor into a drainage ditch. Cussing, he revved the engine back and forth. He called to Velma, "'Go get your papa and tell him to bring me a couple of boards.' Velma skipped over the furrows, singing the second line of Uncle Drew's song, Don't Take It Serious, It's Too Mysterious. The words felt ticklish in her mouth, and she was glad for a break. It took 150 onion sets to plant one 80-foot row. They had done 10 rows so far, and her hands had gone stiff. The sun rose behind the mist, turning it gold. Velma stopped to admire it. Inside the dark barn, she found Papa sharpening an axe on the foot pedal grinder. God darn it, he said. Every year I remind the man to cut the furrows shorter when he gets to that end of the field. He scrambled through the used lumber pile and pulled out a couple of two-by-sixes. They headed back. When they came over the rise, Papa started running. Velma ran after him. The tractor lay on its side at the bottom of the ditch. Papa shut off the engine. In the sudden quiet, his voice sounded strange. Sister, don't come any closer. Velma couldn't stop herself. The rusty red machine rested squarely on Uncle Drew's chest. His eyes were open, 
Pink foam bubbled from his mouth. If she had run instead of skipping, if she hadn't kept singing or stopped to look at the mist, guilt and grief weighed on her like a sack she couldn't put down. For the first year, she dreamed the accident almost every night. She woke screaming, and Mama would come. Shush, Velma. It's nobody's fault. Drew made a bad choice, and every now and then one of them will kill you. Thank you, Norma. That was a great opening to the book. The characters in the book are fictionalized, but they are patterned off of the family members you wrote about in your memoirs. How do you separate yourself from the real people and events to create a piece of fiction? After writing two memoirs, it was truly fun not to be the constant I, I, I in a memoir. I loved getting in the heads of these women and imagining their feelings, their dreams and disappointments, and I got a huge kick out of making myself a side character, a person who appears on stage now and then giving unwanted advice, a person who's secretly despised for leaving Mississippi and laughed at behind her back. What percentage of in common is truth? The events happened. The hotel burned down. My father fell out of love with my mother for not giving him a son. He married his secretary. Everything else is invented. I know my mother grew up at the family hotel, but I don't know the details of her everyday life. I have no idea how my father courted my mother and only vague memories of them during my childhood. I knew Velma, whose name in life was Mildred, and I knew that she came from a small farm outside Picayune, but nothing about her life. She did win a contest as the best typist in Mississippi. So I would say the ends are true, and the means to those ends are invented. We first meet one of your main characters, Lillian, on Christmas morning at her family's resort. She is the youngest of five adult siblings. She runs around like a child looking for her gift. Would you call her spoiled? I do think she was spoiled. She thought she was spoiled. She was the darling baby of a big family, and people indulged her. But Lillian was not a stupid woman. She was talented and industrious, a glorious cook and hostess, a skilled seamstress. She knew how to run an entire hotel. She was also a good liar when she needed to be, which she saw not as a fault, but a necessity. Her mistake was falling in love with a man who could never give her the emotional fulfillment she sought. Lillian is obsessed with marrying into society and moving to Jackson. She sees this goal as the ultimate achievement for her life. When she reaches her goal, she fills her emptiness with alcohol. Is this prevalent in Southern society today, or is this a pattern from the period the book is set? I think there are probably a lot of women today who still have too much time and um, fill it with alcohol and cards. Lillian is, in the book, is obsessed with finding a man to love in a life where she doesn't have to worry about money. Discovering Will Hughes' status and his family's prominence in Jackson, at first that It upsets her because she fears he won't want a person who's uneducated, whose family runs a hotel. And the lies begin early. As soon as she finds out how old Will is, she lops two years off her age to appear younger. And my mother did this. My birth certificate, she lied about her age. And I think Lillian enjoys alcohol, but she doesn't start to rely on it until Will gets back from World War II and she realizes he no longer loves her. This is her 
life's great disappointment and one she constantly tries to remedy. Lillian fails her husband and his family by not providing a male heir. She is punished for this long after it was proven by science that men decide gender. Did they accept the science or was it just easier to blame the woman? That's a really interesting question. Um, The male role in deciding the gender of a child became scientific knowledge, I believe, in the late 1950s. This was never mentioned in our house. I don't remember reading about it in the local papers. I have no indication my mother ever knew. I almost wish now I had included that fact in the book. Have Lillian read about it in the paper and bitterly regret not knowing when Will first attacked her for not having a son? The question, would she have thrown it into in his face a decade later when it became common knowledge, if it ever did, in Jackson, Mississippi? I think not. She was too afraid he would leave her again. The family resort plays a key role in the book. It becomes a refuge during wartime for Lillian and her children. The resort is the same place you grew up. Was that Ellison Wells? And if it was, tell me what your fondest memory of the family resort was and what is your worst? Creekmore Spa in this book is Allison's Wells, and it was a place I adored. We lived there while my father was away in World War II, and those years are seared into my memory. I loved being the niece of the owner. I got to boss all the children who came to stay with their parents. No one under 12 was allowed in the big dining room, and I was the king of the children's porch during meals. Almost every night, I led games of hiding-seek in the dark, which was plenty scary in a 66-room hotel with verandas around two floors and secret passageways underneath. I did not enjoy freezing in the winter, eating my breakfast on school days, trying to stay warm in the hotel kitchen in front of a wood stove. I did not enjoy waiting outside in the still dark for the school bus. I hated third grade, where I was a pariah at my country school. You're going to read a piece about Lillian when she first... This is Lillian's first outing with Will Hughes. Okay. She has met him at a dance at the country club before, and she thinks to herself, this may be the man, the one she's prayed for. And he calls the next day and invites her for a Sunday afternoon drive. Will opened the door of a sky-blue roadster, exactly the kind of car Lillian wished for at Christmas. What a darling car. A pile of junk, really. I drove it all the way through college. She tried to imagine how much money it took to finish college and law school with a car of your own. He started the engine. Do you mind if we keep the top down? Not a bit. Lillian prided herself on possessing the kind of hair and personality that enjoyed being windblown. She wanted this man to see a girl who was undemanding and carefree, not a fretter, no one who might turn into a nag. They pulled away from Hilda's. She liked the looks of his long fingers on the steering wheel. He drove with one hand, and each time he shifted, his other hand neared her knee. Let's hope we make it without breaking down. Will Hughes gave her a smile that made her breath skip. The engine did have a ragged sound. I'm totally confident in your mechanical abilities, she said. He laughed out loud. Don't be. Mother says it's lucky I have a good head because I'm useless with my hands. He was the kind of man who quoted his mother. 
Lillian smoothed her skirt, glad she'd borrowed Hilda's suit, a wine-colored linen that suited her dark hair and eyes. It had a short, flouncy skirt that kept blowing up to show her good legs. Will headed north on North State Street. Have you driven up the Natchez Trace lately? I haven't. The trace was halfway back to the hotel, but Lillian would never ask for a ride home. She'd rather go tomorrow in the produce truck than have him think her needy, or worse, poor. Besides, she didn't want him to see the hotel in the middle of spring cleaning with all its shabbiness on show. When she'd left on Saturday morning, her sisters Maud and Ernestine and the help were dragging the worst of the furniture out to be scrubbed and painted. When Lillian got back tomorrow, she'd be helping them put things back. That's my house, Will said, pointing to his left. Sitting back on a grassy rise, a two-story mansion with fluted white columns. Golly, Lillian said. It just looks big. There were five of us. You said your house has 66 rooms. There are five of us, too. And none of our rooms are fancy. I'm the youngest, Will said. Are you? So am I. Lillian found this an amazing coincidence, practically destiny. That means we're both spoiled. I'm not spoiled. Will sounded almost offensive. It's about the handsomest house I've ever seen. His pleased look made her face go warm. The engine coughed and he adjusted the choke. I'll need to get a respectable car soon. I don't look like a serious lawyer in this one. Can't have a family in a two-seater. Her heart turned to stone. Are you getting married? He gave her a teasing smile. Someday, aren't you? She gazed ahead. When the right man comes along. How old are you, Will ask. What a rude question. I'm 24, he said. I'm 23, said Lillian. She glanced sideways, watching his response. Winning Will Hughes would not be easy, and she didn't mind lying to do it. Having taken two years off her age, she began changing dates in her head from birth through high school graduation. She did a quick run-through of the friends that might accidentally tell him the truth. She could warn her sisters. Ernestina disapproved of lying. Lillian would have to find a way around that. You're quiet, Will said, enjoying the scenery, which was lovely. On the narrow Natchez Trace, the trees were dressed in bright spring green. I like a girl who's not a yapper. Lillian made a note of this. Most people would say she was a yapper. And she wondered what else Will Hughes didn't like. She was willing to turn herself inside out to be what he wanted. Plenty of time to be herself after she became Mrs. Will Hughes. She erased the name from her mind. Rotten luck to even think such a thing. She shivered. Are you cold, Will said? I can put the top up. No, everything is perfect. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. We will return to an interview with Norma Watkins about her novel In Common and discuss the other woman. We're going to switch from the Lillian character and talk a little bit more about the Velma character. She's the one that you introduced in the first story who witnessed her uncle dying um, after he was trampled by a tractor. Velma... Is she a quintessential Southern country girl? Hard to say. I almost entirely invented Velma, her parents, the farm, her life there. So it's, I'm not sure. Uh, 
Lillian was a quintessential flapper, loving cigarettes, cocktails, dancing, fun. Velma is the opposite, raised by a teetotaling religious country family who taught her to fear change, strangers, and traveling to unknown places. When we first meet her, she's a young girl. It's the mist of tragedy. And did you use that tragedy to shape the trajectory of her life? I, I did. Her uncle's accident scarred her, and each time she made a serious choice in her own life, she wonders if the choice is a bad one. Her uh, mother said about Uncle Drew, every now and then one of those choices will kill you, and so she's always thinking about In fact, the book is all about choices and their consequences. Velma is a contradictory character. She is a career woman, and yet she is dominated by a male figure. Did she use up all her courage to leave the farm? I don't think so, but Velma is a shy girl, and she becomes a shy woman. She does not like putting herself forward. She's a talented secretary, but secretaries have bosses, and almost always male bosses. So it seldom occurs to her to cross one. And that same meekness follows her into her marriage. I think Will loves her best because she has so little of him. Okay, now I'm going to move into some of my political questions. In your memoirs, you vividly detail the harsh and unfair treatment of the black servants at your family resort and in Southern society. And in common, you highlight their contribution, but veer from the harsher judgments you made in the past. Why? Because in common is written from the points of view of two women who were very much a part of that time. Neither my mother nor Velma saw the everyday life of black people as horrid. It was the way of life, and they never saw their treatment as cruel. They would not have known what we meant today by systemic racism. You also dip into mid-20th century Southern politics and the need of the male characters to keep an upper hand over people of color. Well, the white female characters mostly turn a blind eye. Do you think that the systemic racism you described was male-driven? Did the women have any power to make change, or were they just as complicit? I think they were complicit in that they almost never tried to make change. Most of the women, not all by any means, but most, followed their husbands' beliefs and agreed with their politics. My mother used to ask my father who she should vote for. So it was, for the most part, within that society, male-driven. Yes. Patriarchy reigned supreme. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about Helen. Lillian and Will's eldest daughter, Helen, is the lone voice of progressive thinking in the book. She verbally spars with her father and others, but her efforts are ineffective. Is her character based on your life? Yes, indeed, (laughs) it is. I fought with my father every night at the dinner table, and many of those fights ended in tears, my tears. How did you deal with the frustration of talking to a wall? Well, eventually I uh, ran away. That's how I dealt with it. Lillian leverages Helen's politics to retain a connection to Will, the male character that the book swirls around. Yes, she does, because after feeling estranged for so long, it's finally this one area 
where they can agree, and it gives her a feeling of connection with him again. So she jumps right in. If he's going to be for segregation, she's twice that much for segregation, and she loves that connection. How did that affect the relationship between Lillian and Helen as a mother and daughter? I think, um, quite honestly, I despised my mother for the way she constantly agreed with my father. And I think it hurt our relationship. She equally despised me for my rebellion. Okay, do we want to try to do a third reading? Sure, let's read, let's do something from Velma. Since we've read two from, um, yeah, I'll read you the night, the first night uh, that Velma spends in the capital after she comes from the country. Okay. Okay. Velma's goal after she turns down a proposal of marriage is to go to business school in Jackson. And her mother gives her the money and um, she rents a room from a widow and will start business school the next day. So her landlady's name is Mrs. Mosley. Mrs. Mosley was not an early riser, she explained, so breakfast was each to her own. She would leave a tea kettle on the stove and a bottle of postum on the counter. All Velma needed to do was light the gas. Matches on the wall to the right of the stove. Plenty of bread for toast, but no butter, unless Velma had her own ration coupons. If she wanted an egg, she should leave a dime on the counter. Velma carried her supper bowl and plate into the kitchen and offered to wash dishes. Miss Mosley said, that's a good girl, and returned to the radio in the living room. Back in her own room, Velma peered through a crack in the curtains at the almost dark sky. She put on the white cotton nightgown she'd ordered from Sears and brushed her teeth in the hall bathroom. Back in bed, she allowed herself to cry, but not much. Her first night away from home. She took out her Bible and opened it to Revelations. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over nations. She didn't need power over nations. She'd settle for finding a way to school tomorrow. She knelt and asked God to bless her parents, her Aunt Ori, and Uncle Drew in heaven. For herself, she asked not to be afraid. Dark enough now to open the curtains. She turned out the light and pulled them back. From the hall, she heard the attic fan start up. She raised both windows and opened the door. A cool breeze moved across the bed. Lying there, looking out at the dark shapes of unfamiliar trees, Velma practiced the names of streets she'd take on the way to school. Pinehurst, Fortification, North State, Pearl. She considered it a good sign that one street was called Fortification. She woke with a heart trying to pound out of her chest, the dream again. Uncle Drew dead under the tractor, the pink froth coming out of his mouth. She hadn't had that dream in years. Sitting up, she took deep breaths. The radium hands on her travel clock pointed to five. Mama said a bad choice could kill you. Was leaving home one of those? Papa believed Ken was all you could count on, and nobody should take themselves more than a holler away. Velma heard Mama's voice in her head, pay him no mind. The sky turned from black to gray. That was Pinehurst Street out the window. She was in Jackson, Mississippi, and today was the first day of business school. The thought made her jump out of bed. She wasn't sure what people wore in the city, so she put on her best, the gray gabardine suit, 
with a pink nylon blouse. She set the flat black straw hat on her head and frowned at herself in the mirror. Hats did nothing for her, but a lady did not go downtown without one. For an extra dime, Mrs. Mosley said she was welcome to make herself a sandwich with two pieces of light bread and a slice of Velveeta. Velma wrapped it in wax paper and put it inside Mama's good purse. Not much of a lunch, but Mrs. Mosley had not offered mayonnaise. On the farm, they had been plain people, which meant buying only what they could not grow, but they grew plenty. For Mrs. Mosley, the war meant taking in a tenant and making do with rations. Velma didn't mind. She'd expected things to be different here in the city. August and the morning sun already heating up the sidewalks. North State Street was lined with crepe myrtle trees in their last bloom. Looking up at the ruffled pink flowers, Velma thought this also might be a sign. Her in a pink blouse and the pink trees. After being surrounded for 18 years by plowed fields, Jackson looked green and lush. Around the big houses, thick shrubs had been trimmed into shapes, and the grass was mowed smooth as velvet. Everything smelled fresh, and nothing smelled like manure. Papa said he didn't give a spit for grass. You couldn't eat it, but Papa was not here. Mama always said the Bible got it wrong. It was gumption that was next to godliness, not cleanliness. Velma felt like Dorothy entering the Emerald City of Oz. Anything could happen. Now I'm going to ask some questions about Will. He is the central figure in the book, All the women and many of the men cower to his dominance, yet he can't have his way in affairs of the heart. His success is determinate on maintaining a facade. Why does he choose business success over love? I think Will Hughes is a man of his time. As a youngest son, he feels obligated to match his father's success and to make a mark on the legal and political affairs of Mississippi. He's a proud Southerner. Nothing in his mind is wrong with the Southern way of life except the interference of the federal government and the troubles brought by outside agitators. Women come in a poor second in his concerns. The book is written from the point of view of women whose lives circle the mill provider. What would be different if these people were transported to our current time? Is the South the same today? Of course, I left in 1966, and my four children all left Mississippi, so I can't speak with any authority on how the South is today. Things have changed for the better. Blacks are accepted in roles they would have been forbidden when I lived there. I'm sure if I did still live in Mississippi, I would have my tiny island of liberal Democratic friends, and I'd live in the middle of an ocean of Republicans. I think if the book were set in the present, it would be a different book, but the harsh feelings are still there. To Will, the Civil War never ended. Do you think the current division in our country is a continuation of the Confederacy versus the Yanks? In a way, I do. One of the clever strategies of the Southern white elite after they undid Reconstruction was to convince poor white people to despise black people. They would tell them, you may not have much, but you're better than them. So our politics today are a continuation of that tactic. Instead of giving people what they need to live a sustainable life, one party gives them something new to hate and fear. 
Were you trying to explain the thinking in the South to the rest of us? Yes, <laughs> indeed. Do you think In Common will be in the Southern libraries? You know, I don't know. Uh, I sent pre-publication copies to 50 independent bookstores in the South, and I know that it's being reviewed by at least two newspapers in Mississippi, but I'm not sure how libraries decide what to stock. Coming up, Norma discusses her writing process and how her family and the good citizens of Jackson reacted to her earlier memoirs. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell, an interview with Norma Watkins about her new novel, In Common. Let's talk a little bit about your writing process and your other two books. Do you develop character studies for your characters? I don't formally do a character study, um, and in, in, I certainly didn't have to for the memoirs. And uh, for In Common, the characters were there in my head, so I didn't have to invent them. But imagining all I did for all I didn't know for Lillian and Velma and Will Hughes, they came to life in the book as entirely different people for me. How often do you write? I don't have a schedule, I'm sorry to say. And as much as I tried to beat that practice into my student's head when I taught creative writing, most days I try to either, at at this point I'm mostly revising, I try to do revising or some marketing chore. Do you have a dedicated space to your writing? I have a lovely office, but I often find myself at the dining room table instead. So you write by hand rather than on no, the computer? No, I write on the computer. Do you all? Do you write it all down and then go back and edit, or do you edit as you go? I've belonged to the same writing group for like 30 years. So whatever I'm working on, I try to have a revised chapter each week for them to comment on. So I'm writing and editing and writing and editing all at the same time. Hopefully moving forward. Are you working on a new book? And if you are, will it be fiction or memoir? I have uh, a fourth book almost ready for publication. It's another novel, and it is based on my family. In, In this book, in common, there's a character named April who appears to be mentally unstable, and she gets on everyone's nerves. So the next book is April's, and it's called Old Testament Eyes, and that will be the end of these four books that are based on my family. Okay, how did you get your start as a writer? I was a great reader as a child, but it never occurred to me that actual people wrote the books. I didn't care about authors at all. I just wanted the books to keep coming. I realized, I think, in sixth grade that I was good at writing personal essays, but I didn't think of myself as a writer until I took a college course with Eudora Welty. And believe me, she did not think of me as one. Then. Do you have a favorite author or someone you've read, everything they ever wrote? I read almost entirely fiction, and I read constantly because it's my reward for doing every chore in my life. So I adore Kate Atkinson. I adore Tessa Hadley. I adore Chimamundi uh, Adichie's Americana. I love the way David Mitchell plays with time. I love the Anns, Ann Patchett and Ann Tyler. Jane Gardam is the best writer no one has ever heard of. I love a young Turkish-American writer called Elif Bottoman. She wrote The Idiot, and she has a story in the latest New Yorker, and I think a new novel called Either Or. I love a lot of older British women fiction writers, 
Barbara Pym, Elizabeth Taylor, Faye Weldon, Shirley Jackson. I adore the naval novels of Patrick O'Brien. Right now, I'm reading a book called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead by the Polish author and winner of the Nobel Prize, Ogre Tokarczuk, and it's crazy good. Your first two books, The Memoirs, expose the bedrooms, back doors, and dirty laundry of your family, but they also enlighten the reader on how Southern society thinks. Do you think your family's experience was universal or unique? I guess every family is unique, but most of the people in Northeast Jackson, where I lived, which is considered the only place to live, felt exactly the way my parents did about politics and the race question. As I said, I think I had about, you know, an island of six liberal friends, and they saved me. I think you have said previously that you weren't welcome back in Mississippi. Are you still persona non grata in Jackson, Mississippi? I think of a lot of people, a lot of the people who dislike me and my politics are dead now. There's hardly anyone left to care. But I remember when The Last Resort came out in 2011, the local bookstore told me that it was their bestseller in Kindle because everyone wanted to read it and no one wanted to be seen reading it. (laughs) Does writing a memoir automatically separate the writer from the people in their lives? Oddly, the sad part about writing a memoir is that once you write the memory down, that's the memory. It gets kind of frozen. Did the book separate me from my family? I don't think I could have been more shunned having run away from a husband and four children. But Southerners are very polite. Hardly anybody insulted me to my face. Bless your heart, right? (laughs) (laughs) Do you think your family actively taught their children to be racist, or was it the larger community that infected everything? We did not have to be taught. We absorbed racism with our mother's milk, which I did not receive because my mother thought it would disfigure her breast. I absorbed racism along with the bottle being fed me by my black nurse who could hold me but never kiss me, who cooked everything I ate but could not sit down and eat with me. Did your family recognize their racism? My family would be insulted to be called racist. They would have you know they were very good to their colored people. So have you stayed in touch with any of your family's black servants, and do they still live in Mississippi? All the servants are now dead, sadly. But yes, they stayed in Mississippi, and I did keep in touch with most of them until they died. Thank you, Norma. Before we go, are you planning any additional public readings locally or a tour? Or In the fall, I will travel to Miami to do a reading at Books and Books there. And from there, I'm going to go to North and South Carolina and Tennessee, where I've also been invited to read. I'll be visiting a local book club here to talk about the novel in June. I love talking to book clubs. So for any listeners who aren't local, I am happy to host a Zoom meeting with your book club. And you can just go to your my website and, and look me up and happy to come virtually. Where can people buy in common locally as well as those who pick up the podcast from out of the area? I hope everyone will order in common from their favorite local independent bookstore. Uh, Locally, that's Gallery Bookshop in Mendocino. It's also available online and from the publisher Black Rose Writing. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Up next is my second guest, Mendocino County Youth Laureate, Sydney Regalbruggy. Sydney Regalbruggy 
is the 2022 Youth Poet Laureate for Mendocino County. She grew up in Point Arena and attends Point Arena High School. Sydney won a scholarship to the Mendocino Writers' Conference in 2021 for her prose and won first place in recitation at the Point Arena High School Poetry Out Loud. Sydney will read some of her poetry for us today and answer a few questions. Thank you, Sydney, for joining us. Thank you for, so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. The first poem that I have today is titled Spring, and just kind of as an introduction, I like to think of it as becoming new and being a teenager. Spring. I believe spring is the time of youth, where the whole world somehow every year seems new. Spring is not the prologue to summer, where the self-conscious teenager shall look in the mirror and point out her flaws. No, spring is new beginnings, where the youth becomes adults as they cross the stage, leaving behind childhood imagination, in a way begging for time to slow and to speed, where they leave the known world for the unknown and acknowledge that small towns hold an impasse, an impasse in time. But when you come back 20 years from now, nothing has changed, except for the nude rain at your mother's temples, or that you don't know the faces in the sports column of your local paper. But it is also love, the love and fear of prom dates, the expectations, the shaking hands, and the quivering voice. The stomp of the heels and the drag of your dress, and the closeness of the one holding you. To the silly song of youth. And you swear that this moment shall last, caught up in foolish time of love, with hopes it'll last past summer, and hopes that it won't. It is getting married after college, where the whole world seems to have settled down, and the love of your then life is looking you in the eye, in your parents' orchard, where the blossoms have sprung, and the once puppy has grown old with the shadow casting upon. It is the birth of your first child and its life that you hold for that bittersweet impasse of time. It is your children returning to that same small town where nothing yet everything has changed, including your new look of gray. Thank you, Sydney. You've received a lot of accolades for a young writer. Is writing in your long-term plans? Writing is in my current and long-term plans. Having this experience of being Poet Laureate and going to conferences for my writing has given me the insight that this is something that I can do for a living and not really something that I was too sure of about. So I see it kind of going into college, but even more so now, just kind of living my life in the present moment and that it does take up so much of my current life. So it's in my long-term plans and It's never really going to go away, even if I decide on a career that does not involve creative writing. It's still definitely going to be a huge part of my life. What is your goal, the ultimate prize for you? The ultimate prize for writing and poetry? To bring this writing and safe space to other people who don't have it. And to find a way to incorporate this joy that writing brings me to everybody and anybody else. And to continue to get to experience poetry and writing with those around me and in my community and hopefully have a safe space for anyone who needs an escape from real life. You write prose and poetry 
Do you have a preference? I love both of them. Specifically, when writing poetry, I can recall that exact moment when I started to write the piece. And the memories, the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings all kind of come into play. And I feel like I'm transported back into that moment. Whereas writing takes a lot longer and my prose tend to wait a little bit for me to fully understand them. So I see that more as a journey as I do poetry. But when they come together, it kind of creates the perfect writing for me. Has writing helped you navigate the world around you? Writing has given me an insight into other people's lives in a way that you have to research the characters that you write and kind of put yourselves into what their day-to-day life is. I'm not sure if it helps me process it more, but it gives me an outlet to experience my emotions. And even not in my own writing, but in others, sometimes going on searches for others' writing or poetry to find other people's experience with the issues that I don't deal with, especially living here as you know, a white woman. I don't really experience everything that other people do. So it gives me an insight into what others experience and helps me not feel alone in the kind of minuscule but very big teenage insecurities that tend to come out. What would you tell young aspiring writers about your experiences? To not be afraid of rejection. And as hard as it is to put yourself out there, it's so worth it. And that opportunities really don't just fall into your lap. If this is something that you want to do and this was something that I wanted to do, having a mentor that will help push you to put yourself out there and to not be sad or upset when someone doesn't like your writing or tries to put it down because that's kind of the beauty of being an author or a poet is that it's your own and for that short amount of time where the person is reading your work listening to your work you get to shape their view of the world from your voice and so to remember that this is your time to share your thoughts emotions and feelings with the world I'm going to ask Sydney to do another reading. She has a second poem that she's going to read for us. Religious angst. The wind blows, lost in the midst of the darkness, as the fog sets in over the banks. I see it, the white, soft flow of a marriage dawn sour. Next to her, a tired girl with eyes as black as coal, and she's staring at me. Watching me with her sinful eyes, they won't let go. I feel her secrets encompass me, our shared whispers behind the bedsheet, telling me all the bad things. Some she's done, some she's seen. We all live in sin, with our paper white teeth and melodramatic laughs, telling my secrets to the girl in black. She knows just as much as I do, but not enough to turn her back of the darkness held within that we shy away from, especially in our sin. Sign of the cross on my forehead, blessed be the church, the priest, the choir of angels. They all know the words I whispered into the night to the dark ceiling. God himself shall shake his head with a rueful smile, my temporary fixation trying to be the best child.
Thank you. Do you have a favorite writer you'd like to recommend? I don't know if I have a favorite writer. I have writers that I tend to love and go back to for comfort. Neil Gaiman is someone that I could just spend hours reading piece after piece and really force myself to sit down and enjoy it. Um, Jenny Han has written some wonderful book series, kind of young adult, which I really think that young adult should not just be for teenagers, that there's things to learn and experience at all ages. So I don't have a favorite writer. I have, I love Emily Dickinson as a poet. Amanda Gorman is fantastic. She just came out with a new book. I think it's called They Call Us What We Carry. So amazing and good. So I don't have a favorite author, but I tend to like to go to libraries or bookstores and take a book that's on clearance or hasn't been bought because it seems a little out there and read it. And those tend to be the best books. So where can people find or buy your poetry or your prose? So I do not have any pieces published. As Mendocino County Youth Poet Laureate, I am working on building a website that will kind of be handed down to the poets after me, and the list and collection of my poems will be on there that is kind of in the making right now. And I'm creating an official Instagram page to kind of bring my writing. I do have some recitations and some pieces of my writing up on my YouTube channel, which if you just type in my name, Sydney Rattlebrady, it will pop up. One of my goals as Poet Laureate is to publish a book of poetry that will include me and um, other fellow poets in Mendocino County. And if life tends to work out the way I'd want to, I hope at some point, not soon, but at some point in my future as an adult, I will have my own book published. But as of right now, there is no place. All right. Thank you, Sydney. Thank you for joining us for the second episode of Upwelling. You've been listening to an interview with award-winning author Norma Watkins about her new novel, In Common, and Mendocino County Youth Laureate Sydney Regalbruggy. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Our intro and exit music are provided by Paul Blackwell. To share this show with other listeners, go to kzyx.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.